we were a one percenter and it was almost like a unique underground movement. It doesn't have any magical mystique to me anymore. When I created Rambo's, I wanted a cross between a snooker hall, a gypsy caravan, Chinese brothel and a dentist. My grandmother always said to me, if you can't say anything nice about somebody, don't say anything. My name is Steph Bastian. In my 10 years on the road, I've met many unique characters in the tattoo business, and they all have one thing in common, incredible stories. Stories of past times, personal growth, priceless experience, and of course, bizarre happenings. I want to share those stories with you. This is Tattoo Tales. Today we have Rambo here from Manchester, which has one of the biggest collections in tattoo memorabilia. Uh, he's been around for a very long time. He knows all the bits of British tattooing history. Rambo, welcome. Hello there. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. I'm good. So, where you come from, Rambo? Well, I was What's born in Salford, uh, close by the Manchester docks. Um, I used to see uh, lots of seamen, navy people coming through the docks, and, and it was all foreign to me to see these people wearing tattoos. I didn't know there were tattoos then. I just thought, well, look at them, you know, pictures on the skin and stuff. And then one day I went to the swimming bass, you know, with my mother and we was, you know, in the swimming pool area and, and I seen more tattoos. And I said to my mother, what are them pictures called? She said, they're called tattoos. How old are you? And I would have been about 10 years of age then. And that was the moment I knew that's what really, really took a strong grip on my imagination. And, that's what I wanted to be somehow, either have the tattoos or become a tattooist or... Because there was a tattooist in, um, in Salford on Trafford Road, right facing the, the dock gates, called Cash Cooper. And I used to see people coming in and out of there with the tattoos and I was just fascinated by it. And I used to hang around there and stuff. Because and, in them days, um, tattooing was, you know, if I talked to my mother or my father about it, it was it was frowned upon and they just used to say, don't be getting any of them bloody tattoos, I don't want you coming over. And the thing is, back in them days, you know, 1967, 1968, you could go and get a tattoo without having to be 18 years of age, because the Tattooing and Minors Act only came about in 1969, after that, thereabouts, you know. 1969, the Tattooing and Minors Act, you had to be 18. But before that, tattooists would just tattoo you if they thought you were okay uh, with it. You know, and I'm talking a tender age. I mean, Barry Tingle, he wanted a tattoo when he was 10 years of age. He was my friend. And his mother took him and said, can you tattoo him? And Cash Cooper just tattooed him. He was 10 years of age. He had mother, father and Barry. And I mean, today you'd think that was, it's like child abuse really, isn't it? You know, you're putting them under a needle and giving them a yeah. tattoo without any anaesthetic. And Barry was the talk of the street. It's like, wow, Barry's got a tattoo. I wanted one. And I remember telling my gran, when I was playing in, in the street with Barry with football and stuff, I said, I want a tattoo. She went, don't we have any of them? So anyway, I'd have been about 11 years of age and Barry Tingle put a little, uh, matchstick man on my leg by, you know, uh, the jabbing method, just a bit of cotton on a mm -hmm. needle, and he did it by hand, and I just thought, I want one of these tattoos, and I wanted a professional one. Anyway, the tattoo is closed, he got himself in a situation, Cash Cooper, because he would tattoo anybody, he was, a, he was an alcoholic, uh, he was quite a character though, he was quite funny, um, he, he actually tattooed a guy called Billy Hammett, and he tattooed him, he was only 13 or 12, and he tattooed cut along death dotted line on his neck. Mm. And when Les found out his dad, he went absolutely berserk. And uh, anyway, but by the time Cash Cooper had sobered up and realized who was actually after him, some bad family from Salford, he moved and disappeared overnight. Yeah. So anyway, cut the story short, I'd have been about 13 when a friend of mine in school had a tattoo and I said, where did you get that done? He said, oh, Cash Cooper's in, in Manchester, in Harper 8, at Conrad Street. So I thought, well, I'm going, I want one. So I went and got a tattoo, and I was 13 years of age, and they tattooed, and that was 47 years ago. And it cost me 35 pence, which is about, I don't know, maybe a dollar or something. 
and um, he tattooed the word Rambo on my arm. I mean, that's well before Sylvester Stallone was ever established as an actor or as a film. And that was how I got the book. I thought, well, I'm having another one, and blah, blah, blah. And anyway, cut the story short, um, I'd have been about 15, and by then I had accumulated about half a dozen tattoos. And my father said to me, don't ever get any tattoos, because I was inquiring about his, and he said, oh, they were done by Art Kale. He said, but don't you be getting any tattoos. The funny thing is I've now become the person he warned me against because it's what I've done for the last 30 odd years, 35 years tattooing. So um, anyway, cut the story short, it's, it's a really warm summer of 1975 or 74 and I'm rolling, I'm keeping my sleeves buttoned down. I'm so they don't know you've got tattoos? No, they haven't got a clue. And uh, he said, yeah, he said, I've got you some nice t-shirts here. And this, it was Salford University. It's not something you could buy in the shop. It was a T-shirt that you had to get from the university. So it's quite cool. It wasn't very commercial. And uh, he gave one of my friends, Johnny New, love one. Uh, sorry, John Noons. He said, "Yeah, John, you can have. Do you want one, Paul?" I said, "Yeah, they're great." Then he said, "Well, try it on and see if it fits." And I knew, I felt that if I try this on, he's going to see the tattoos. Then I've got to deal with it, his reaction. So I said, to tell you what, Dad, no, I don't, I don't really like it, I'll leave it. And then the following day, he brought some more home from the university because he was scaffolding around there, so he was getting these T-shirts out one way or the other. And he said, I've got some more T-shirts, but you don't want one, do you? And he gave Johnny Noons another T-shirt. And I thought, bollocks to this, I want one of them shirts, you know, I'm missing out. So he said, well, try it on then. So I knew what was going to happen. So I've took my t I've took, unbuttoned my shirt, and there I am with all these tattoos showing. And I could feel his eyes piercing me. He went, all right, tattoos, eh? you fucking idiot. I told him that I'd get it. Anyway, that was out of the way. And then the rest was history, really. It's just something I always wanted to do. But, he, you know, I don't think he thought there was... Back in the days then, when I was 15, 16, I was ready to leave school, to become a tattooist, it was more for the one percenters. It wasn't something that your average person would leave school and maybe become a plumber or an electrician. You don't leave school to become a tattooist because there was no way you could go. It's not like now with the internet, you can just get anything you want and there's even tattoo schools. Back then you couldn't do that. So you really, really, and plus I couldn't say to my father, I want to be a tattooist because I think he might have felt ashamed of me. What the fucking hell are you doing? Becoming one of them, you know, because he had strong opinions that he regretted his tattoos and he just assumed I would. So anyway, I, I, I took a, uh, a course in painting and decorating and I got what was known as my sitting gills. And my sitting gills is something that proves that you've uh, done your course, you see. So um, I did that for a couple of years and I just, I was bored shitless, you know. All I was doing was painting rooms and wallpapering rooms and I just thought, this is not me, I know what I want to do. So when I was 21, 22, I started knocking around with a tattoo artist called Alan Dixon and he started in 1978 and I could see how, you know, how busy he was getting and I knew it was from a business point of view it was better to be a tattooist than to work me, me guts out being a painter and decorator for about £500 a week when, you know, I knew he could be doing that in a day and he'd be doing something because to me, if you can get a job what you're happy with and you, you you really do enjoy what you're doing. To me, that's not work. It's then It then becomes a hobby that pays well. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be happy at my work. And 35 years on, you know, I still love tattooing. I don't, I'm retired now. You know, I still have Rambo's tattoo parlor. It still has, you know, top artists in the, in the country working in there. But I have just, you know, I, I'm exhausted really. 35 years tattooing. And you know, I've tattooed probably, Sad Saunders said to me, he said, you've probably tattooed more people in this country than any other tattooist. And that is probably true. I mean, every day was like a mad Saturday for me and I was doing it all by myself for years and years and years. A good 20 years, I did it all by myself because we were very secretive back then. You know, if a tattooist would phone you up and say, all right, Rambo, how's it going? Are you busy? You didn't want to say you was busy because you didn't want to create competition for yourself. So I would just say, well, I'm just plodding on, but really I'd be sweating buckets because I'm so busy. Um, so I did 20 years of that. Um, 
and then Dave Heap and uh, you know he's known as the king of the Lancashire Flash good old friend of mine Dave uh, we got together and I worked side by side with Dave because by then I was getting you know to the stage where I really didn't need help what years were this? Um, I'd say 17 20 years ago whatever that is off uh, maybe 1990 I think Dave joined me in 1997 something like that and we worked together side by side for 17 years and then the tattooing boom happened and you know the the customer base was being shared by every Tom Dick and Harry in the houses they were working in shops they, they were sharing shops so you know there's only so many slices of cake you can get when you cut it otherwise if you try to cut it too finely everybody just gets crumbs and that's what happened I just thought you know what uh, and then Dave always kept hold of his shop and uh, uh, only worked it Thursday Friday Saturday he came to Rambo's Monday Tuesday Wednesdays uh, and then you know he had the Thursday and Sunday off so it suited him and it was a good arrangement um, and you know he, he was getting to the stage where he was getting on in his years and he didn't like the travelling coming from Ramsbottom uh, so, sorry Accrington which is near Ramsbottom anyway and it was the travelling that was getting to his I was getting tired and stuff so we you know we're still good friends so when he pulled out and, and my son was still doing it Jack and I've got another son Dean who, who owns a tattoo parlour in Piccadilly I just pulled out and I said, right, I'm retired and I've had enough because I was physically exhausted because it, it, it's not like you, your muscles ache and it's your mind and, and it's the stress and, you know, you feel exhausted inside. You had to, to get engaged. I was talking with this friend of mine, which is, his name is Omar and he's it's been to there for 28 years and it's funny because he says at some point you will see the Omar show, you know, because yeah. he's like, I really believe in giving the customer a good time. You know, you don't go there, boom, ciao. You need to kind of engage, put, you know, this is a bit of an entertainer well, now. Well, it is. So. I mean, tattooists of my generation, the showman, you get a bit of spiel in there and a few jokes and a few stories, and that makes the customer feel good because you were something unique in the old days. The tattooists would talk to the customer and, and, and throw them a few stories, and they love it. It was all bullshit, really. But it's part of the... But it's part of the charm and the personality of being an old-school tattooist. Today, they're a bit more... They're too sanitised, really. Some of the tattoo parlours are, are, are like... I don't know, they're just too white, stark and boring. To me, I wanted, when I created Rambos, I wanted a cross between a snooker or a gypsy caravan and you know a Chinese brothel and a dentist I wanted all that mixed into one yeah. you've seen my parlour so you know what that is it's like the Trocadero of tattooing yeah, not many places like that no it's unique it's one off and, that, and people said to me how did you come with this and I said well it's 20 years in my head there is no blueprint for this it's just what I it, it, I created it throughout me 20 years of thinking about wanting to it's dress a reflection a of yourself yes so that's how that came about and um, and the other reason I, I stopped tattooing I mean like coming back to what I said I mean I've tattooed that many people um, you get what's known as repetitive strain injury through tattooing with the machine constantly that buzz does some damage to your hands and I was doing tattoos towards the end before I retired and I was lasting like 30 minutes and my hand was in so much pain and it was it was aching and buzzing and stuff. That, that's all I could do. I could do maybe an eagle or a dagger or a, a scroll with a love eye and a swallow swifted round. After that, I'd had enough, you know. So I thought, all right, well, I'm going to have to do something. And then I met a lovely person called Olivia Dawn, and she used to come to the museum, and she mithered and mithered for me to let her take over Rambo's. Don't let it go. It's, it's Manchester's longest established tattoo parlour, and, you know, you, you've got to keep it going. So she taught me around to uh, letting her run the place, really. And I'm glad she did, really, because... When you're, you're seeing something every day, like I was going into Rambo's every day, when you're seeing something like that every day, that is not old to you, that's just familiarity. But to someone outside that circle, that is, that's been there since I was a kid. Somebody once said to me, and you, you realise you've been around for a long time, when they come round and they say, you know, uh, my granddad has had his tattoo done by you, and you think, shit, <laughs> really? Yeah, and my mum and dad came here, and you realise then that it is part of the fabric. I mean, I tattooed a policeman once, and he said to me, he said, uh, sometimes when we're on jobs, he said, if it comes through on the radio, and we're in Manchester, and we've got, he said, we'd say, 
following vehicle in pursuit up Shudil, turn right at Rambo's. And I, when he said that, I said, did he say that? Or did he say turn right at, at Thomas Street? He said, no, they all say turn right at Rambo's. I said, and that's when I realised I'd, I'd left my mark. It's become... The institution. Yeah, it's become, uh, you know, a landmark, turn right at Rambo's, right at Rambo's. And I thought, well, fair enough, you know, I've made my mark, I suppose. Uh, but getting back to the uh, tattooing, it's something I always wanted to do. And Cash Cooper was the first tattooist I was aware of, you see. So when I got my tattoo done at Conran Street, uh, I was 13 years of age. Like I say, it was 35p for Rambo. And I got talking to him. He was an absolute... I mean, he left a real big imprint in, in my memory. I mean, he, he was such an interesting guy. He was very well educated. Well, he sounded educated, anyway, because he talked very posh and, you know, wise sounding to a 13-year-old. But he was a drunkard. I'd say, how much is that tattoo? And he'd say, nip next door to the co-op and get me a quarter of a bottle of whiskey and I'll do it. And in them days, I could just go with a note written by Cash, please sell this chap my whiskey. And, you know, he was that well known. I'd go in the court with a note. She went, is it for Cash Cooper? And she'd pass me the whiskey. She already knew the routine because he must have done it so many times with other customers. Anyway, one day, I mean, I goes in there and he said to me, he said, uh, he said, listen, he said, if you want to work, because I've been going and bringing customers to him, we got he got to recognise me and, and got a bit familiar. And he said, look, if you want to learn how to tattoo, I'll teach you. He said, but I won't pay you in money, I'll pay you in tattoos. But this is at a time when I hadn't even told my father about the tattoos. And I thought, fucking hell, I, I'm going to be covered in them, I can't do this, you know. <laughs> Never thought for one minute I could just say, look, I'll work for nothing, forget the tattoos. I didn't want to disrespect him in case he thought he, he meant, you know, I meant his work. So it goes back to Barry Tingle. I, I said, Barry Tingle, uh, and so I said, I met Barry. Barry Tingle's the one who had the mother and father at 10. I said, I know where Cash Cooper is. I said, he's, he's in Manchester. Because Salford and Manchester are two different cities, you see. So I went, oh, come on then. But, so I took him down and introduced him. I said, this is Barry, you tattooed him when he was 10. All right, what else are you wanting to do? I think it was 10. Yeah, it's, like it's just crazy. mental, you know. So um, I introduced him. I said, listen, Barry, I said, he's offered me a job. I said, well, I don't want it. Yeah. I do want the job, but I don't want to be covered in tattoos at 13, 14. My fucking father will go mental. So he said, uh, oh, well, introduce, I said, yeah, Barry, this is Cash, Cash, he, he'll work for you. He went, oh, right, okay. So he started helping him out and running errands and, and just basically emptying the ashtrays of the cigarettes and clearing up the crap. And bit by bit, that's how Barry Tingle got into tattooing. Then he met Sass Saunders and then Sass Saunders used to go out with Barry's sister. So it was all connected. But I always, in some way, felt a little bit like I'd missed a good opportunity by not moving in with Cash Cooper sooner but you know fast forward 10 years or so and then I was on it anyway um, but Cash Cooper getting back to Cash Cooper he, he took over Art Kale's old shop now Art Kale was one of the real old uh, school his father was William Kale and William Kale tattooed my dad he had two tattoos uh, that's all my dad had and um, he would have been around the time of Joseph Hartley um, George Bichette, Tom Riley, Sutherland MacDonald. They were all that period. And I've got letters from Art Kale to um, Percy Waters and, and vice versa. And so it would have all been that school, you know. Uh, anyway, when he retired, his son Art Kale took over the shop, which was on Conran Street in Manchester. When he was getting ready to retire in 1972, Cash Cooper had had all this shit in uh, Salford with the cut along dotted line. So he must have gone to Art Kale's and then he took over Art Kale's shop. So it's gone William Kale, which is Billy Kale, William Kale, Art Kale, which is his son Arthur, and then straight on to uh, Cash Cooper. And Cash Cooper stayed there until the slum clearance of about 74, early 75 maybe. And that was it then, there was no other tattooists in Manchester. And then, you know, fast forward about another 12 months from 75, and there's a place in Manchester called the Underground Market. And uh, Cotney Paul came from uh, London, settled in Stockport, and then opened up in Manchester. And the next time I saw Cash Cooper was when he was working with Cotney Paul. The last I heard of Cash Cooper, he died in 1978. 
and he was about 58 years of age, 59, he was alcoholic poison. Alcoholic, yeah. yeah. So that was Cash Cooper, but getting back to Cash Cooper, he was still a big influence on me as a tattooist, and I absolutely loved the, listening to the guy. He was such a good storyteller. Probably all bullshit, but it, it was good old-fashioned bullshit told with passion that you were enthralled and you, you were drawn Which in. Which doesn't really matter. If it's no, it's good on. stories, you know? So um, I'd sit there and... I'd, I'd listen to his stories, and he was a character. He had St. George and the Dragon tattooed on his head. And every year he would shave that off to celebrate St. George's Day, but still leave the picture on the side with all his tattoos around it. He looks a right fucking character. And he looked like a monk with this. Yeah, <laughs> he didn't bother shaving all his head, just the bit where the tattoo was. So uh, I'd go to his shop and stuff, and then I'd hear him talk. And I remember him, he used to suffer with piles, and he used to tattoo on the side like this. And I used to think, God, he tattoos in a really awkward position. But that's because he had, because he had hemorrhoids. He used to tattoo like that. And I used to think, God, he tattoos odd. But it was because he had the hemorrhoids. And uh, he was tattooing this girl once, and uh, she went, I want this tattoo. And she, she's picking a tattoo anyway. So Cash Cooper's dipping his machine. It was a big, heavy top rotary machine that he used. And as he turned over, he's, he's, he's ripped his jeans on a nail on the side of the uh, at the bench or the table. Yeah, the bench. So, as he's tattooing this girl, she says, you've ripped your trousers there. And he had a pair of, he had a suit there, like a dark suit and a tie, that's what they wore. So he's got this rip on his knee with a bit of white skin showing through. So while he's talking to her, and she's having the tattoo, he's noticed that, he's gone straight back to the ink, and he's tattooing a fucking white bit of skin, black, while he's tattooing her. And he's gone, there you go, As it, you can't see it now, can you? And he's just tattooed a bit of black to hide the... <laughs> So it blend in, <laughs> and that was, and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Instant patch. Just did it there, and then carry on tattooing her with the same needle. You know, that's how it was. It just, just mental. And then another time, Cash Cooper, he used to, in his shop. He had an eagle. Um, you've probably seen photographs of that. The eagle. I have it in my museum, and um, he wanted to go one different again. I mean, in Tib Street in Manchester, which is not far from me, you could buy anything in the day there. You could order a lion, a tiger, whatever. Anyway, one day, Cash Cooper bought a puma. Now, Cash Cooper had a dog at his shop called Fang. A live puma. A real puma, yeah. And he had a dog at his sh shop called Fang. And he, he, put, he tattooed Fang on his leg, like, you know, if anybody stole... Nobody would steal his dog, it was fucking man on you, scared shitless. Anyway, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to steal his dog. And he used to have a sign in the shop saying, Thieves beware, Fang protects this shop. Anyway, he's gone and bought a Puma, and he's scrubbed the sign out, and it's got, please be aware, th thieves, please be aware of the Puma, and he was scrubbed dog out. <laughs> so he's gone into Manchester, and he was an alcoholic, and he's gone into wine, uh, Yates's wine lodge, and he's walked in, he was a bit drunk, and he's got this Puma on the lead. He's walking around with a Puma. He was walking around, yeah, he was in the papers, and he's walking around, and it was like parting of the waves as he walked in. Everybody just walking, went on one side and stood there. He said, can I have a drink, please? And he's got this Puma. Anyway, he was arrested, and the Puma was arrested for drunken disorderly in, in a, you know, in, in Manchester. And this is just some of the stories he would do. He was an absolute character, he really was. You know, and uh, I was glad to have known him. I mean, Cash Cooper is the sort of person, if you said to him, um, I think you could swallow that microphone. It is possible to do that. He would try and swallow it to, to see if it could be done. He is fucking mental. He really is. You know, I, I mean, he was a bit of an entertainer as well, you know, on the third and stuff. I've got photographs of him with a turban on, blowing fire, you know, a fire blower. And he wanted to learn how to do glass eating. Okay. You know, a, a glass eater, and he just started in the pub with a, a normal glass. And they went, Well, you don't do real glass, you'll cut your mouth. You need sugar glass. Oh, all right, then he said, <laughs> Boo! And that was him, you know, just absolutely crazy. From a child's point of view, I was only 13, 14, but I knew him, and he tattooed me a couple of times. Um, and that's how he was. He, you know, he, he was a real interesting character, anyway. That was. You know, part of my introduction, but as far as my upbringing went, I had a pretty, uh, a pretty tough life, really. I suppose you know, there was five of us to one bedroom, lived in up a two, two down. My father, my mother came from a large family, thirteen children, 
Um, and then we, we lived in Salford, you know, every man for himself, but we had nothing, but we all got on and we all had a good time, you know, I lived through the, the Salford slum clearance where they were pulling all the houses down, so I had a great adventure. What's a slum clearance? A slum clearance is um, where they pull lots of houses down that are no f longer fit for human habitation, you know, they, they've no inside running toilets, no running wa hot water, they, you know, all we had was two bedrooms, and a living room and a kitchen downstairs with a cold water tap, no toilet. If you wanted a toilet, you had to go out into the backyard and it would be there at the bottom of the uh, back alleyway where they would all use the toilets. And that's how it was, and everyone was the same. And they were considered, you know, that they should have been pulled down in the 30s, but they somehow managed to still be around in the 60s and 70s. So during, the, you know, the mid-60s and the 70s, they just pulled all sulfur down, as they did with a lot of uh, inner cities up and down the country. They all got pulled down. Uh, and it was what's known as a national slum clearance. Where did you go after that? Well, they, what they were doing, as they pulled half of Salford down, um, they were building a new, a, new, a new half. So we stayed within Salford. We, we went up to an area what was known as the precinct. They had a big shopping arcade there and they built houses. It was nice, but I, I preferred the old place because, you know, all the characters and friends and everything were there. and It, it was just more neighbourly somehow. You know, uh, and if you fuck about with a community too much, you, you know, you never get it back, you've lost it. Once it's gone, it's gone. Anyway, that was my childhood, and I had a burning ambition to want to be a tattooist. It was always there, it was always something, you know, I wanted to do. And, and I got into it eventually, and, you know, it, through the old tried method, really. When I started, you couldn't just go on, there was no internet. This is pre internet, this, the digital world didn't even exist. And you know, I had to. Um, I mean, to, to get American tattoo addresses, you had to buy them if you were lucky. And I mean, if you were lucky, you had to give like fifty quid, and someone would sell it you. And then when you were ready to get your fifty quid back, you'd sell it. And then you, nobody would tell you anything. They would only tell you once you've reached that point of what they knew. So they weren't really telling you anything. They're giving play. you a few bits and pieces because you know you had to draw your own flash. You had to sort your own power packs because you know you couldn't buy power packs really. We just used battery chargers and you know that you charge a battery in a car and and you tweak it and and stuff like that. And clip cards were just something you'd make out of an old bit of flex from a lamp. And mixing colours, I used to mix my own colours, you know, and fucking green everywhere. It was just mental. There is a little a little thing that I saw from your interview which I really like, and. Uh at first it says, it's easier today to become a tattooist, but back then this guy had to make his own machines from what he had available. I feel these guys really deserve to be a tattooist. Yeah. And they kind of like resume it. And another one is, let me find it. We all need to celebrate the years of the past. After all, they kept this form alive uh, when it was much more difficult to do so. They passed on the knowledge that the younger tattooists are building careers on today. It's not okay to have an I don't care attitude because that says an awful lot about you. If you don't respect others, why should anyone respect you? Yeah. So it gives like a, I like this to, to draw the line of ethics here because mm -hmm. you know how hard it was. Well, you know? this is it. I mean, I was self-taught and, and you know, that's how a lot of us got into it. A lot of us were self-taught and nobody would teach it because they had to struggle to get where they was. So I, I came through, what took me five years to learn you can learn that in six months because of the internet and because of the, the availability of people, the way they discuss. So, you know, I mean, it's the old saying, uh, you know, go sacrifice an arm if you want a tattoo. Learn yourself, you know, because, I mean, a lot of, a lot of them did use to test the colours out on themselves before because the colours were, were trial and error, really. They wasn't necessarily from a reputable source. I mean, now, uh, you know, you got all these big firms who, who are dealing in colours. But back then, you had maybe Spalding's, and if you didn't buy from Spalding and Rogers, you would go to your local art shop, you'd buy the ink, and you don't know if it had chromium content in it or lead content. You just mix that colour, but before you put it on a customer, you had to try that out on your own leg. And if that had a bad reaction, you know not to do that. Or if you had a good friend who wasn't bothered because he didn't have to pay for the tattoos off you, you would test it out on him. 
and if it had a bad reaction you know not to use that green or that red and that's how it was because green was notoriously hard to get in in the old days it really was a bastard it just didn't you had to work it slow and easy to get it in now green can just fly in with a you know a flat seven flat it'll just drop in but back then it didn't it really didn't that's why a lot of tattoos from that my period uh, the flash i drew I tried to leave green out because I knew I'd be standing on my fucking head trying to do it on a busy Saturday to get all the green in. So, you know, I'd only put green in leaves and stuff like that. If it, you know, if there was a big design needed a colour, I'd, I'd tend to adopt a red rather than a green. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's how it was. Exactly. Greens and blues were, were hard. Um, and a lot of tattoos of my generation and my era will know exactly what I'm talking about. So, you know, I had to do everything myself. I had to draw my flash. I had to, you know, be a bit of an electrician, you know, to understand how, how the machine runs. And I've never been great with machines anyway, because, you know, the simplest of things are sometimes the most hardest to spot if you are not used to what you're doing so when you're going through all this trial and error of trying to become a tattooist you're not just putting a tattoo in the skin you've got to be a mechanic to understand the workings of the machine you've got to be an electrician to see if you know for some reason it stopped buzzing why is it stopped buzzing it can be a break in the clip cord it can be something to do with the coils and these are all things you learned and these things can take you four or five years to find out now you can just get that information straight away which in one way, you know, it's a lot easier to learn, but in another way, I think I had the best time because I went through it all with lots of interesting people and lots of fun, and we were a one percenter, and it was almost like a unique underground movement. If you were a tattooist, you would give that person respect because you know what shit he's gone through yeah. to get there. Now, they don't get respect. They're just like hairdressers or a, or, or a barber or a nail parlor. They're on every corner. So it doesn't have any magical mystique to me anymore. It just means there's that many there I forgot the number and I don't count anymore. You give up counting after 30 shops, you think, oh, what's the fucking point? I mean, years ago, if somebody came in my shop, I could work out who, who did that tattoo as, you know, Nine times out of ten, I would get it right. I'd say, you had that done in Aldershot. You had that done in... Uh, Cash Cooper did that. Jimmy Thompson did that. Blah, blah, blah. You got that done up such a place. Or, you know, I would just know who'd done the tattoos, you know. Uh, now you can't do that because they're all... Back then, everybody had their own style. they draw their own flash, like I was saying. And Jimmy Thompson had drawn his flash the way he, he tattooed. So when he did his tattoos, I would know that style. I would draw mine the way I drew mine and, and Cash Cooper would draw this so that's how you know now everybody's just getting designs and copying line for line shading for shading and they're just all you know there's no individuality there's no little bits that you can say oh that's such a body so because they're just all drawing from flash they can buy or get on the internet there was no availability so I guess that you would have you would come up anyway with your original thing because yeah. you had to like create those creative solution you know to make this oh how am I gonna make this work I'm gonna make it this way but now you have so many reference if everybody look at the same reference or the same if everybody's yeah, singing yeah. from the same yeah. M sheet there's no difference in the tune it's, it's the same in it yeah so you know that's what I think um, and that's why I could tell years ago I could tell most people's work now I can't because it all just looks the same but the quality of the work is better better machines, better needles, purer colours and better skill because artists have come into the profession which is great for the, the customers, they get the best tattoos um, but there's something about the old school that is a, a, a nice old charm I mean half the old school were freehand artists, today they're not I mean the last of the old school artists really is Dave if you went to him for a tattoo, you sit down, what do you want an eagle he just goes straight to the skin with the machine. No fucking drawing on the skin, straight to the skin. And to a to a point, I did that as well. You know, if they wanted simple things like a swallow or a lover or a rose, I would just put a guideline with a, you know, like a cross to find the center of the flower and work out from that. I didn't draw it, I just tattoo it from that. But Davey would just go straight to the skin because he's drew that many eagles over his years he would just know what he's doing you see. It's, a, it's a muscle memory a friend of mine was telling me about the Japanese apprentices you know they would do like for years let's say five years just trace 
the designs for the master, yeah. so then it gets into the muscle memory. Yeah. So then you get to the point when you tattoo, then you, know you just the like flow, you know where the angle goes. Yeah, just like Bleh. yeah, that's right. Mm. Uh, and and to a degree, that was it. I mean, when I started, I mean, I've had a few shops. Um, we started out in uh, a place called Stockport Road in Manchester. It's in between Manchester and Stockport. And it was just a, a little old second-hand shop with a, a bit of a room next to it. And we rented this shop, £15 a week it was. And we had no electric, we had no water. And um, we just plumped, we tapped into his electric next door. And um, <laughs> he came one day and went, Fucking hell, he said, you're paying me 15 quid a week and you're using my electric and my water. So anyway, we lasted six months there and the council got to know about it and we didn't have planning permission to be tattooing in this shop. So we had to leave there. Then I went to Rill and I was with a guy called Wills and he was my partner. We pretty much sold together. And we went to Rill. We did a season there. Then when that season finished, we went to Germany and we tattooed in Germany from a Volkswagen camper van. And we went through Senelaga, Detmold, Munster, Varden, Varden. So you were moving around? Varden? Moving around with the Yeah, band. in the van, tattooing at army camps, garrisons, because, uh, you know, they, they were good customers and soldiers. You know, they, they get paid once a month, and they've got all this money, and all they can do is drink, shag, and have tattoos, because they can't do anything else. So, um, you know, it was great. We, we did a stint, but, I, you know, I had two young children then, Dean and Dwayne, and... You know, they're like four and five, and I was missing my family, and I wanted, so I came back here. And Will's my partner; he went to France and moved and set up in France, because uh, France was a good area at one time. I've tattooed in France as well myself back in '86, I think. So anyway, I came back to Manchester, and that's when I set up Rambo's. Uh, I opened it up, and I remember the first tattoo I did. It was a, you know, a little flower with a, something in it, England or something. And my first day I took £50 and I thought, wow, this is fantastic. I'm doing something I enjoy, something I love, and it's not really work. It's a pleasure to come into work. And, and I, I felt so free after having all them years of painting and decorating and, and the, the strain and pressure and the stress and the responsibility of having to go into work every day as a chore rather than something I want to do. So tattooing's been very good to me. You know, over the years, I wanted to put something back. And the way I think I've put something back is, along the way, I've been collecting tattooing memorabilia. And, you know, as you know, I have a, a, a large tattoo museum. And I thought, this is all my memories. This is how I got into tattooing, through the people like Cash Cooper and stuff. And they were using old, outdated flash and machines back then, because nobody knew there was no reason to have the up-to-date uh, machines from America and stuff like that. You know, I read memoirs of a tattoo artist by George Rochette, and I just thought, wow, that is me, you know, I should be doing something. And I noticed a lot of people who I was influenced by, and people I looked up to, like Cash Cooper and Jimmy Thompson, and, and Art Kale, and all these people, they were getting to a stage where they'd retired and some had already died. I was in a bit of a, situation where I thought right I've got a few quid I'll go and buy some stuff and I just used to go around to tattooists I used to write to them saying look I'm hoping long term plan is to open up a tattoo museum I know you've retired if you've got any old tattoo stuff you'd like to sell can you give me a shout and a uh, few people got back in touch with Rusty Scoots got in touch with me Danny Scoots got in touch with me and sold me lots of stuff um, different people James Mitchell and then I thought right I'll, I'll, I'll do it now, I'll open the museum. And 20 odd years ago, I fitted it all out. Uh, have you seen the museum? Yeah, when yeah. I came for the Lyle bit. Okay, so you know what it's like. So I fitted it all out, and that's what I did. And hopefully, I'm glad I did that, because a lot of these tattooists now, they've gone, they've gone. And when I was collecting the stuff, tattooists of my generation thought it was just old Junk. shit. Yeah. yeah, old shit. And the young tattooists who were coming in behind me, didn't want that, they wanted the latest flash, you know, by JD Crow or whatever it was, and I wanted all the soul stuff, and, you know, I mean, so, in a way, I've done the right thing, because, I mean, I've got, I've got tattoo memorabilia by Jeff uh, Jaguar, Jeff Baker, uh, Cash Cooper, Art Kale, William Kale, uh, uh, Jimmy Thompson, um, the Scooses, and Joseph Hartley, uh, Saz Saunders and all the, the tattooists that were part of 
the six, the 50s, and 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, even the 80s, I have got probably in the world the only collection of all them tattoo artists in Britain. I have got, if you can throw a, an established tattoo name to me from the 70s, chances are I will have their stuff or some of that stuff. What's your favourite bits of your collection? Um, that, that's an hard one, isn't it, really? It's like I've said before, you know. It's like children, which one yeah. do you like the most? Which one do you sacrifice? <laughs> yeah. you, don't, you don't have a favourite with children. And with tattooing, you know, I can go in, look at some 1960s stuff and absolutely love it. Then go to another part of the museum, look at some Victorian tattooing stuff and think, wow, this is fabulous. Um, so I have rare items that, you know, um, not necessarily my favourites, but I have super rare items, like I have an Edison machine, that's 1870s. Uh, that's quite rare. Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison, yeah. I have uh, the world's only known in existence um, Sutherland McDonald tattoo machine. That's super rare. That is super rare. Lyle Tuttle wanted that. Yeah, yeah, you know, he'd, uh, he'd often say to me, if you ever want to trade that, let me know. But yeah, uh, I've got uh, some nice Christian Violet stuff. I've got uni I've got a lot of unique stuff. I've got beautiful flash from all over the world. And, at the time, like I say, there might have been a dozen people worldwide who were interested in this. Now it's a different thing because the more tattooists that are coming and setting up and coming into the business, that will create another person who, who may want to become a collector. Do you so, think now there is like a renaissance of interest for that kind of traditional stuff? You know, well, like a. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you go to most tattoo parlours now and they've all got a bit of old flash on the wall because there is a market for that old traditional style. A lot of the generation now of customers want what their granddad had on because they can say, oh, my granddad had that. You know, I mean, if you keep something long enough, it comes back into fashion. It's like flares, you know, from the 1970s. One day they'll come back in fashion, yeah, you know. Yeah. And it's the same with tattoos. You know, I mean, tattooing is an art. The only difference between me and Rembrandt is I got my money before I fucking died, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. You know, so I'm all right with that. Um, yeah, so... Yeah, there is there is a market for it, and even tattooing flash. Now, buying tattooing flash is not as easy as it used to be, because it has a crossover interest with folk art, really, and that's what I love about old tattooing art. I mean, most tattoo flash pre 1970 is all hand drawn, because there was no suppliers apart from people like Owen Jensen, Zeiss, and Davis who would sell tattoo designs. But if you didn't know them addresses, you just had to draw, and a lot of the times. Customers from you know around the world would come through Cash Coopers, and he would just trace tattoos off sailors and seamen, and when they come through the docks, and say, "Oh, that's interesting," and they just trace them because they they didn't have you know um, an outlet like they have now where you can go and buy flash or get off the internet. So sheets of flash that we're talking about, they're all like hand drawn, and it's almost like a crossover, a folk art, if you like. So you got your collectors of tattooing flash who love all the old flash then you've got your collectors who love folk art and then also you've got people who are not necessarily into tattooing art but can appreciate the beauty of it and these are interior designers who are doing up really exclusive places and they want a bit of tattoo art in it because tattooing is big at the moment it really is it's a global thing so to get a bit of old stuff and say it's original so all these factors push the prices up so now I don't buy anymore because I don't think it's uh, something I want to be paying when I've got used to buying it at a normal price as opposed to an inflated price. I guess you might get a lot of requests of selling this, selling that. Some people approach me, do you ever want to sell anything and I just say no because you know uh, money you can earn, tangible items that you love you can't, <laughs> you know once they come they come. Uh, and I do enjoy it. When when the day comes when I don't need it or I don't enjoy it, I'll, I'll probably sell. That's not to say I don't let things go. I do trade to other collectors. If they've got something I want, I mean, primarily I want English stuff, British tattooing items, that is what I want because I'm British. So yeah, I would trade and, and swap uh, for some items. Not everything I've got. There'll be some things that I just, I couldn't let go. But you can say, Never, you can never say never, can you? Who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, do your kids share this passion? Not really, no. They understand and respect what I do, and they know it's uh, of importance. Pretty sure if anything should happen to me, 
uh, it'd be a mammoth task for them to go through and be at the back of the mine they're getting ripped off and stuff so you know I'd like it to go along the same lines as Tuttle really uh, find a permanent spot for it but a proper permanent spot at the moment it has got a permanent spot because it's in Rambo's and I own the building anyway so no landlord can give me an hard time to move my stuff it's there but when I'm dead and gone if that building has to be sold for one reason or other then the collection has to be boxed up and found a you know permanent spot doesn't it. And do you have a lot of people coming see it, the museum? Um, it's, it's strictly by appointment only. Um, uh, we Yeah, I get a fair amount of people, but only if I think they're worthy of it. If I think they just, you know, they've got an hour to kill and they're waiting for a bus back to London or something, I, I can soon pick up on that. I can read what I call the carpet treaders and the people who enjoy it. If they enjoy it, yeah, they come in and they get a little Do you talk. have like a, like even people from overseas or something? That went yeah, yeah, they come from America and all over the place, Australia. There's a lot of famous people in there. Lyle Tuttle's been. Mm -hmm. You know, he's, when he stayed at my house, he wanted to see my collection. Um, Chris Trevino, um, different people. I can't remember. I'd have to. I have a book with all people in there. Ronnie Ackers, he loved it, and Danny Scoos loved it, and you know, there's a lot of people been over the years. This this passion, tattooing obviously, but then as well the, the museum and stuff. I think the cool part is that it, it, through your life it puts you on a path where you get to meet certain people, and yes. you know what I mean. It's yeah. it's a vehicle. Well, it is. Yeah, I mean, well they say, don't they? Give me the boy at seven, and I'll give you the man. I think your life's mapped out at seven anyway, uh, or maybe ten for me. <laughs> and I think, you know, um, whatever you get into, it will take you there. Uh, I mean, you know, to some degree, I was born to be a tattooist, I think, and you're right in some ways. Having this uh, museum is a unique position, and it does open doors a little bit, because certain people want to talk to you, like yourself, you want to talk to me because they have something to talk about. And yes, it opens doors. Um, but I've never been a party animal anyway. I've never been a self-promoter. I think the best self-promoter really this country's had in the last 30, 40 years is Lal Hardy. Um, I think through the history, you've got Sutherland MacDonald, you've got George Michette, then you, you jump from George Michette to Les Scoos, then you jump from Les Scoos to Lal Hardy really. Them are the big names that people will remember when he is dead and gone. Um, I'll be in there somewhere. You know, like Cash Cooper's in there somewhere and in the tattoo history and Rambles will be in there in the tattoo history. You need to get a puma. Uh, I'll get a puma, yeah. <laughs> well, I've got a tiger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, it does open doors and people tend to respect you. And it creates a bit of jealousy as well, I suppose. Yeah, like I that, have yeah. people who are, who are jealous. I, I mean, I know I've had jealousy all my life. If ever you're successful at something, there's always somebody going to be there to try and knock you down. Um, but I'm a self-made man, I had nothing, I came from nothing, you know, we were very poor and um, financially I'm sound and I've, I've achieved what I wanted to achieve in life. Lyle Tuttle said to me just before he died, he said, if there's one thing Rambo you could have in the tattooing collecting field, what would it be? And I actually said to him, to be honest with you Lyle, I don't want anything, I'm happy with what I've got. And I think when you can get to that spot, you're content and then you're at peace with yourself because there is nothing I would want. Don't get me wrong, I, I mean, I, I do collect and I would like more things of tattooing beauty, but I think I, I'm, I'm content with what I've got now. I can't have everything. I don't want to be the only person in the schoolyard with the collecting cards. Yeah. That's no fun. I want to be able to discuss. When I went to Lyle Tuttle's house and we got talking, he couldn't wait to show me what he had because it, he knew I was different from any other person that approaches him because he knew I was, we were so in touch, he knew, you know, when he showed me something that I would have an answer if he didn't know it. He was showing me things, he said, who do you think that's by? I said, that's such a body that. I said, yeah, yeah, I, I wasn't sure. He said, but now you've said that, that confirms it. And, you know, it, it, you could see he was, he was eager to show me things because I was on his level, if you get what I mean. And that was good, it opened his doors and I stayed at his house and we stayed in his apartment and I was his guest and it was really nice. So yeah, it opens doors. How long have you known love for? Um, I went for a meal with him when he was 65, when he came to my house. Uh, so you were about there, 
25 years as a friend, maybe. Um, yeah, he came to see me in 97, 98, I think. And he came to the shop. We put photographs and we celebrated and we went out for a meal. And he's a charmer. He's got personality. And he, he knows how to win people over. I think that's the best thing Lyle has had his time alive, Danielle coming into his life. She's got a big responsibility there looking after that museum. She really, really has. And um, she is his saving grace, if you like, because who else could he leave it to? His daughter wasn't interested in tattooing. If anything, it's it's cause it's took her dad away from her a bit, if you like, because he's such a celebrity that he, um, I don't think she has a love for it. Danielle really wasn't a tattooist. She was a, a gilder gold you know gold artist and she got to know Lyle through uh, giving her some space to do what she needed to do for an exhibition and they became good friends and and this is how things happen about opening doors you know they opened the door for her and now she's took on the, uh, the responsibility of carrying that forward and hopefully she will find a full and better place for it I know she's doing a lot of fundraising so I think he was quite at peace knowing that Danielle's took over that because we had good talks yeah so yeah he was a good old friend was Lyle I enjoyed his time and, and the thing is before I went to San Francisco I'd not seen him since he was 65 years of age he was 87 the following time I saw him so it's been a gap like of 22 years and I'm so glad that I made the effort because at one time I nearly gave up it was becoming a bit of you know all the hotels were booked and stuff like that and and I, I nearly gave up. I thought, oh, I can't be bothered with this. But I knew I needed to go, because he was getting on in years. And I said, look, Danielle, I'm going to have to leave this. She went, no, you're not. No, I want you to be here, Rambo. And she said, yeah, I'm putting you up at Lyle's apartment above his shop. I said, is that OK? She said, yeah, yeah, no, I want you there. Lyle wants you there. He told me, no, I want Rambo to come. Which was a nice thing for me, that he requested that. I said, I'll try and get over, blah, blah, blah. And then in the end, I said, look, I can't make it. It's too much hassle. She went, no, Lyle wants you to come, come and stay at his place. When so was that? That was just before September mm. last year, uh, 2018. So I went over to see Lyle, we shook hands, and, it's, and we just had this massive mutual respect for each other and interest in the same subject. It was just, it was a bond, you know, an invisible bond. We just knew it was there. And I was so glad I did that, because like I said, I nearly gave up at one stage, and I'm so glad it happened, and I'm thankful to Danielle for pushing on that and making sure everything came together, because I had some really, really special times with him before he died, and it was really, really nice. He sent me a text and he said, Rambo, he said, I am really, really looking forward to coming to Manchester. For me, seeing your museum would be the icing on the cake. And three weeks before he was due, he took very ill. Danielle phoned me to say, Lord, he's dying. And um, please don't tell anybody, the family won't. So I never I never told anybody. You know, I, I mean, she told, she made the announcement. And uh, I had to cancel the show here at the Lower Turks End. You know he was here, obviously. Yeah. And he was really looking forward to that. And he said, I can't wait to see all the new acquisitions you've got in the museum. And that's fantastic. He's got, he's like a 20 year old man in an old man's body. You know, he still had the passion and the drive and the excitement. I mean, I was telling him certain things about it. He said, God damn it. He said, I'm looking forward to seeing that stuff. And, you know, I mailed him to say, look, all the tickets are sold out. The shows are sell out, blah, blah. And I was really looking forward to seeing him and showing him that. But when your turn in the queue comes up at the uh, the, the, the death counter, that's the thing that you've got to do. I am so glad that I made that effort. I really am. I think two minds were tuned into the same thing and that's what the most enjoyable relaxed part of the, sh the visit was really we can just talk and you know there's nobody interrupting and you know, nobody you know let's say can we have a photograph or you know we just relaxed and it was lovely it really was so yeah it does open doors and you know if i was just a plumber or an electrician i wouldn't get to lie at all that way you know what would you say is the, like, over this long career and, and history, what would you say is the most valuable thing you learned? To keep your mouth shut at the right time. 
okay? Because sometimes you can get so engrossed in what you're doing, you may not intentionally badmouth somebody, but it can come out the wrong way. So you have to guard yourself. You know, my grandmother always said to me, look, if you can't say anything nice about somebody, don't say anything. And she's, she's right. Because the thing is, if you, I mean, you've only got to look at the Queen Mother. The Queen Mother has never given an opinion in her 60 years as the Queen Mother of England. On the, in her reign of 60 years, she's never badmouthed anybody. And, you know, you've got to give somebody respect for that. So I try not to badmouth anybody. There's people who I don't like in the profession, but then people know who that is. But I won't badmouth them. They might want to badmouth me, but that just shows how cheap they are. And something you would do different if you could go back? What, in the tattooing profession? Yeah. Um, not really, no. I mean, you know, I could... I mean, there was a time where I was going to uh, open up more tattoo parlours and, uh, and franchise the brand a little bit. I could have done that. But you know what? It's not that important to me because I have not suffered as a tattooist. If anything, I really, really benefited in such a good way that I am happy, more than happy with what I've achieved in my, in my profession as a tattooist, collector and artist. I've met some great people. I've had great times. I don't think like the last 35 years I've been to work, I feel like the last 35 years someone's paid me to enjoy myself. Yeah. <laughs> privilege. Yeah, because tattooing, if, you, if you're happy with what you do, it doesn't become work, it becomes a hobby, like I say. You look forward to it. Yes, you? definitely, yeah. And, and that's it, you know. Um, no, tattooing's been very good to me, and I realise I've got a serious responsibility to the, the collection. Hey, I do have plans. I want to do uh, somewhere along the way in the future, hopefully. I want to do a, a Rambo's retrospective tattoo show. Got to find the right venue. I have people who, um, who know what they're doing, want to help out on this. I know Danielle said she'd help me. And there's other people in the museum profession who've said, look, you've got to do this. You've got to get your history down. If you want to interview me um, and just go through the museum, interview me, talking and taking notes, so everything's down from oral to print. So it's there because you know people like me and and and, and so you know if unless you tell somebody that goes with you, doesn't it? That, you know them stories go with you when you pass away. So you know I'm all for that. I'm all for you know getting all this down on paper before not too long really I want to get on with that you know everybody who's seen the museum saying wow you want to get this to a bigger audience you really really need to show this so you know something like that would be great and it wouldn't be just from an egotistical point of view from my side it would be great for people who are not necessarily interested in tattooing but have a curiosity that would probably go to uh, a, a real big retrospective show and look at the British tattoo in history and they could see for themselves wow I had no idea this existed because these are the people that are not necessarily interested in tattooing but can appreciate collections I mean I've got letters from Jeff Baker and he said when I die I, I want everything left to Rambo uh, which was a lovely thing to do you know I, when he, I, I went to see his daughter she said my dad's left you know I said yeah I said I got a letter from him and it read along the lines of dear Rambo if anything should happen to me I've left in my private papers that everything should be left to you anything you don't want the leftovers can go to Lionel Titchener so needless to say there wasn't much left anyway <laughs> so um, Anyway, I gets the call and it goes down to see Jeff's daughter. You know, I, I paid her good money. She went, no, I don't want any money. My dad said it's a gift. I said, no, I said, some of this stuff is worth the money I want to pay. So she was happy with that and I was happy because I feel like, you know. Supporting. Yeah, everyone's happy out there. So, yeah, so it'd be, it'd be a nice pipe dream for me to get all that displayed. Because what I have really, could put it in an anger, an aircraft anger display it you do really need to get the right space for it and this is where like I say Tuttle's in a similar situation this is what Lyle, Lyle, Danielle's trying to do for Lyle she's trying to get that space 
but I have the opportunity, the advantage, if you like, of thinking while I'm here, this needs to be done, and I've got to do it. So if it happens, I'm sure you'll hear about it. Definitely, I will come see it. Definitely, your fingers crossed. Yeah. Rambo, this was was a privilege. Thank yeah, you for okay. sharing all those yeah. things. Yeah, because that's the point of, of what I'm doing. I yeah. deserve this mm. passion. Yeah. See, the thing is, when I used to know Cotney Paul, and he was very flash, and he came to Manchester, and he was a nice guy, Paul. But he was, he thought, you know, he'd live like a king for the day and close the tattoo shop for the week. You know, he'd get taxis from here to Blackpool, and it cost hundred pound. You know, he always thought. The tattoo tree would bear fruit. He always thought that, you know, and it doesn't because time's moved on, you know. Before the tattoo explosion, I made sure I, I was not foolish with what I earned. Because the thing is, you never miss your water so your well runs dry. And I didn't want to be in that situation like Connie Paul was. He always thought the tattoo tree would bear fruit. So that's why I kept for a rainy day. And that gave me the freedom to buy tattoo stuff from the museum and to preserve and collect and buy a building to put that in. So, you know, I'm fortunate and I'm lucky, but I'm also very hardworking. Yeah, definitely, and smart. Yeah, well, I try to be. <laughs> Not today. <laughs> <laughs> Where can people find you, your shop, your yeah, museum? Well, uh, Rambo's Tattoo Parlour is in the centre of Manchester. Taxi drivers know it. You don't even need a postcode. You yeah, police know it. Yeah, it's a, it's a location, isn't it? It's Manchester's longest established registered tattoo artist uh, and parlour. If people want to come to the museum, I just, you know, it is by appointment only. Because it's free, I don't charge. I have to give my time up to be there for an hour or two. And as you know, uh, I am in this stage of life now. If I get five minutes, I want that five minutes for me. But if they're serious people, that's great. They're welcome, you know. Uh, what I don't want is situations where you've got, I don't know, Mrs. Coltart coming along with little Johnny and he's looking Big Mac spilling all over the place. I don't want that sort of shit, you know. I am not there for the people, like your professional museums uh, who can afford to have people going round and and saying this way please and that's that and, you know it is a private museum and because of that I don't charge the public so therefore it is by appointment only um, usually if people draw a bit of flash and show interest and you know I'll put that flash in the museum that's great the other thing is if I know they are interested I know you're interested so I would show you around the museum because you are interested it's just the people who are always sort of Got nothing to do today. Let's go there. Let's have a look in that. I can see through that, and I don't. Want, I only want people. It was. I know if they're seriously interested or not. So they, they usually get through the people. It's just filtering out the uh, the carpet It's very convenient. Yeah. Yeah. So they can just write you. Yeah, they can. They can mail me on uh, Rambo's. I'm on Instagram as Rambo's Tattoo Museum, Manchester. Quite a long time for an Instagram account, apparently. Oh, they can contact me at Paul Shudell. Now the thing is, Paul Shudell, my real name is Paul Ramsbottom. And this digital world and stuff, I was getting to know and understand this. So when I first went on Facebook, I went on as Paul Ramsbottom. And my private life is, you know, I'm a teddy boy and I enjoy rock and roll. And I have a rock and roll friends. But I didn't want to put my friends in the rock and roll scene knowing my tattoo side of the business because I'm still old school. So it took me years to get my head around it and I thought, oh, okay, then I'll just go on as Paul, Paul Tudor. And that's how it was, you see. Okay. You know, because uh, people who know me, they don't, you know, around the corner say, oh, it's Pauling, because they know me. If they say it's Rambo, and I know it's a custom. They say it's Pauling. So I just put Paul Tudor. Then all of a sudden, these Americans are getting such, hey, how's Paul Shudale and stuff? They thought that was my name. <laughs> so there was nothing dodgy about it. It just, I didn't want my friends in the ta in the Teddy Boy scene, the, the rock and roll Paul Ramsbottom side, I didn't want them knowing about my tattooing business. The two worlds, yeah. Yeah, I wanted to keep that private because, you know, that's my tattooing career. It was private. Only because, you know, I thought they'll be learning tattoo tips and trade secrets. I, you know, as a tattooist, I come from that school where you told nobody anything. And I didn't want them knowing that. Now it means nothing, you know. So Paul Ramsbottom is my real name. Paul Shudill is my tattoo uh, name. 
So, because sometimes people say, why have you got two names? I said, I'm not. I'm Paul Ramsborn, Paul of Shrewd Hill. But it's stuck that way. And obviously, Rambo is a, a, a nickname for Ramsborn, but short, Rambo. Yeah. And uh, that's why it's called Rambo's in Manchester, you know. But that's how Paul Shrewd Hill came about, which I think was, uh, you know, sometimes you can't see what's going to What's going to happen. Yeah, so I was okay with that, you know. Yeah. It's okay. I don't mind. But that's how that came about. That's fine. Rambo, okay. thank you very much. Thanks for the answer. And it. I'll see you next time in Manchester. That's good. Thanks for the interview. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. I hope you had as much fun as I had recording this episode. Stay tuned for the release of the new ones. You can follow the updates on Instagram page Tattoo Tales Podcast and on my personal one, Steph Bastin. Share if you liked it and remember that in September there will be the launch of my new project, the Tattoo Fun Club. I've selected over 200 artists amongst the very best to decorate Japanese paper fan, celebrating the old timers that came before us and contributed to make tattooing what it is today. The artworks will be exhibited at the London Tattoo Convention 27, 28, 29 September 2019 and auctioned online afterwards to raise money for kids' charity. You'll be able to participate worldwide to acquire the unique originals of Philip Liu, Freddie Corbin, Juan Puente, Timothy Oyer, Oriyoshi III and the list goes on and on. For details, check our Instagram page Steph Bastian Presents. Have an awesome day.